Welcome to the Step in the Gorbals podcast. I'm Jessica, and today we're here with Dr. Sean Elias and Professor Emma Thompson. Hi, Dr. Elias and Professor Thompson. How are you? Good, thanks. Hi, good, thanks. Could you please tell us a bit about yourself? My name's Emma Thompson, and I work as a, a medical doctor in the NHS, and uh, I work also as a scientist uh, running a laboratory at the MRC Centre for Virus Research in Glasgow. I'm Dr. Sean Elias. I'm a postdoctoral research scientist at the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford. And so I work on infectious disease and immunology and kind of vaccine research. Thank you both. So today, my sister and I would like to ask you some questions related to COVID vaccines. Hi, I'm Annabelle. What is a vaccine? Shall I start? And then maybe Sean might give more detail because he works a lot in the laboratory from a, a doctor's point of view, a vaccine is a, I guess it's a type of medicine that protects you from an infection before you've actually been exposed to it, before you get it. What a vaccine does is it trains your immune system to recognize a nasty bug like the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, which I think is what you're probably most interested in right now. So it kind of trains your immune system to recognize that virus. So when you are exposed to it, if you are exposed to it, that you'd be able to fight it off without getting any illness. And just to add, it's, a vaccine is usually a small part of or multiple parts of the actual disease-causing organism. So the bacteria or the virus or various other things that cause the infectious diseases, um, we tend to use a small part of that in the vaccine. And as uh, Emma pointed out, it's all about training your immune system so it can kind of mimic being infected. A vaccine mimics kind of natural infection in a way that stimulates your body without actually causing disease. And then when you're exposed again, your body can respond and protect you against it. And your body also forms a long-term memory. So it kind of remembers what that's like. And that response can be not only short-term, but potentially very long-term as well. So vaccines just help prevent you get the disease. That's the plan. They're not always 100% effective, but in most cases, they will prevent you from getting the disease. Or they will at least make it so that if you do get the disease, you don't get very sick and it reduces the kind of impact of getting the disease. How do scientists start making a vaccine? So there's lots of ways that you can start making a vaccine. The first thing you need to do when you're making a vaccine is to decide what disease you want to make the vaccine for. So obviously, in the last year and a half or so, we've known we've needed to make a vaccine for COVID-19. But before that, there's lots and lots of diseases out there that we need to make vaccines for. So some are high priority and some are lower priority. And some we already have vaccines for. But sometimes those ones we already have vaccines for aren't that effective. So we need to make better ones. So that's the first step. Decide what you want to make. Then you want to basically look at the disease and go, what part of the disease might be the most effective part to train our immune systems against? When we know that, we can then look and kind of in the lab and see how we can make the vaccine for either directly from the disease or using some new technology. How do people receive vaccines? Vaccines can be given in different ways. So mostly we inject vaccines into your arm. You've probably had some already for various illnesses. We start giving vaccines to people quite early when they're babies still. And that helps to prevent illnesses that maybe like your great-grandparents might have struggled with when they were your age, things like polio and other viruses and um, also some bacterial infections. So we tend to inject most vaccines, but there are other vaccines that can be given either by mouth, so as a tablet, or when I was little, I, I got a sugar cube with polio vaccine on it, which was given in that way at that time. 
And then also now we're thinking about giving vaccines that you might inhale as well. So there are actually different ways of giving vaccines. And it might be in the future that we don't need to stick needles into people's arms um, because nobody really likes that that much, even though it's not that bad. And so in the future, perhaps some of the vaccines that you get later when you're older won't be injections. Yeah, no, very much the case. There's other other reasons that we might sometimes look away from using needles. So sometimes using needles is, is the best way. If we have a kind of diseases that infect your blood, then actually having your immune response focused in your blood is very effective. And that's the best way to kind of have the vaccine. However, some diseases, mostly if, if you look at COVID, for example, it mostly affects your breathing in your chest, at least kind of in the early stage of infection, that's how it gets in. So actually having, for example, vaccines that you can inhale or, for example, squirt up your nose, actually it delivers the vaccine to the part of the body where you want to direct that immune response. So actually some of our immune response, some of those cells, and things which actually can help clear up the infection, some of them live specifically in our lungs rather than just in our blood. By encouraging those to be kind of multiplied and kind of produced in our body, actually helps protect us better than if we give the vaccine in other different ways. Um, And there's other technology as we look into the future where we can develop new vaccines. Sometimes rather than directly into the blood, you want to kind of get it into the muscle and things like that, which is actually the most common route. Um, And most COVID vaccines are injected into your muscle. Now we can actually do that sometimes by injecting them into the skin. And rather than use a needle, you can use a little patch. So if you imagine just kind of a little patch that you just stick on yourself and that can really do it much quicker and much more painlessly. Um, I know that you can like get the flu vaccine up your nose because I've had that before. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe there'll be more that we can give that way in the future. People can do COVID tests at home. So at some point, will people be able to give themselves a vaccine? Sean, do you want to add to that first? (laughs) Yeah, so I think the kind of doing the COVID tests at home is a kind of great introduction to what it's like doing a little experiment. Actually, some of these type of experiments, this is basically a very simple version of some of the bigger experiments we do in the lab. With giving a vaccine, obviously with giving vaccines with a needle, you need to have a trained individual giving those vaccines. But if in the future we have vaccines such as the ones you can spray or those I mentioned as patches, those type of vaccines you probably could, too good, could give to people yourself because it's very simple to administer it. However, you'd still have to have control of when people get it because we wouldn't want people giving themselves the vaccine at the wrong time. So you'd have to have a kind of very clever system of um, either sending the vaccine to people or people having to pick it up from maybe the pharmacy as they do with, you know, kind of other prescription drugs. But I think that would be a, in the future a very easily kind of controlled system. But obviously there's other kind of safety considerations you'd have to put in place because you'd need to know a very good profile of how safe the vaccine is because obviously some people sometimes do have a reaction to that to the vaccine so you wouldn't want people giving a vaccine to themselves at home and then having a reaction and which they need to kind of be hospitalized rather than if they do that in a doctor's surgery they're obviously in a safer environment so vaccines that we've had for a very long time and we know they're very very safe I could definitely see that but for newer experimental vaccines where we're still kind of trying to understand the safety I think it's probably unlikely that we'll be in a situation where people can do it themselves. Yeah, because like I agree with you on that because people could get like needle injuries or things from what I've heard. Um, how do scientists check if vaccines are safe long term? We do these trials just to see whether or not people get side effects during the trial. And 
we follow people up a lot. They have a lot of appointments during the year after the vaccine just to see how they are and to have blood tests and make sure that they're fine. But even after a vaccine is licensed, we also follow up how people are with the vaccines. And um, one of the jobs that I have is to work with public health in Scotland to look and see whether the vaccines are working well and if people are getting side effects from them. And the same thing happens in England as well with Public Health England uh, monitoring this. And we do it in a variety of different ways, but any doctor can actually report if someone has what sounds like a side effect to a vaccine at any time, even 30 years after they, someone has had a vaccine. So there's monitoring even after the end of a clinical trial. And we also look to see how well people are doing who've had the vaccine in comparison with people who haven't had the vaccine to make sure that there is no sort of suggestion of very rare side effects happening with the vaccine as well in the in the whole population. So we can look at all the records of everybody in the population and see if people who've had the vaccine are getting anything more often than people who haven't had it. So are the people who had the vaccine, um, what kind of side effects have they been experiencing? The most common side effects that people get are to get a little bit of fever or feel a little bit sort of headachey and kind of unwell for a day or two. Those are quite common, but very mild. And usually they just settle very quickly, but perhaps you might feel a little bit more tired than usual for a day or two after the vaccine. So those are common side effects. And we see that with lots of vaccines. And in some ways, it's a good thing because your body is recognising that there's a vaccine there and that it's making an immune response and that can tire you a bit. You know, your body actually has to do some quite hard work to make antibodies and T-cells and things which can recognise the virus in the future. So feeling tired and having a bit of fever and so on is common. And then there are some really rare side effects. And I think we've probably learned more from this vaccine because it's probably been the most scrutinized vaccine of any vaccine ever. That would be my view. I don't know what Sean thinks, but we've given it to millions of people all at once. And so we can actually look and see if there are some really, really rare side effects. And there are some really, really rare side effects. And perhaps this is one reason why injecting a vaccine at home might not be such a good idea. So sometimes people can have an allergic reaction to the vaccine and they might get a rash or they might even have what we call anaphylaxis, which is kind of a nasty allergy. So that can be made safe very quickly in a hospital if it happens. And it's very, very rare like you're probably more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to get a nasty side effect from the vaccine. Probably you're looking at, at the level of one or so in 100,000 people, you know, like it's a very, very low risk. And there are many, many things that might happen to one person in 100,000 that you wouldn't think twice about. So I think it's to do with just weighing up the risks and balances and the, the risk of if you're older of getting COVID-19 infection is much, much worse than that you know so the vaccine saves lives the oxford vaccine has saved probably hundreds of thousands of lives already and the other vaccines and so it's all at, you know at the balance of maybe hundreds of thousands of lives with a very small number of people with severe side effects so it's better to be vaccinated um so you mentioned like the different types of vaccines like the oxford and Pfizer ones how many like different types are there and how are they different yeah, so there's lots of different types of vaccine, actually, and some are kind of older, kind of, and we've been using for a very long time. And some, especially lots of the ones that we're using currently in the kind of COVID pandemic, are actually called very, very new vaccine types with very new technology. So if you look at the oldest kind of types, 
So the first kind of vaccines were typically you take the disease of interest. So you take a virus or bacteria and you basically try and make it so it's harmless. Now, you can do this in different ways. You could heat it. You basically heat it up so it kind of kills it, but it's still kind of in the correct kind of formation. Um, And you can use that in a vaccine. Another way is you can keep it alive, but weaken it. And again, the ways you can do this nowadays, what we actually do is we kind of modify its kind of genetic code so it can't cause any disease. But in the old days, what they used to do is basically put it into cells where it grows. And over time, it gets weaker. If you think about it in the kind of way that we domesticated dogs. So we used to have wolves and now we've got really small, useless dogs that can't really hurt you, but they're still dogs. And the same way we can do that with vaccines. So those vaccines are really good. They're usually very effective. And Unlike some of the other ones, they use multiple parts of the viruses because it's kind of a whole kind of virus or a whole bacteria. So there's lots of different bits. Sometimes, though, those type of vaccines aren't always the most effective and they can also kind of cause some side effects that are maybe are different. Um, or sometimes in the really, really old vaccines, sometimes those ones that you've kind of killed or made kind of inactive can come back alive and actually the vaccine could cause disease. There's some old polio vaccines that actually that's been a big issue with. But nowadays they're being replaced by newer ones. Um, Another type of vaccine we use is called a subunit vaccine. The spike proteins, which we use, for example, on COVID, you can actually take those proteins directly, make them in the lab and use those in vaccines. Those are are very, very good. But because they're obviously a single part, not a whole virus, our body sometimes needs a bit of a help to kind of recognize it and produce a better immune response. So we use something called an adjuvant, which is basically some kind of chemicals that help stimulate the immune response along with the protein. So they're kind of protein adjuvant. If you use, like, for example, those in virus vaccines, that's great. If you're using bacterial ones, sometimes you used to need some slightly different techniques. And sometimes you need to kind of balance. Sometimes we use sugars rather than proteins. And so to make those better, we sometimes add proteins to those sugars to help make a much better vaccine. So they're the kind of the what we call the kind of traditional types of vaccine. And actually during the pandemic, there are people developing vaccines for COVID along those lines, but they're a bit slower to make. They're kind of, even though they're older, they're a bit more difficult to do. Um, and so they've taken a bit more time. Some of the newer technologies we've used uh, are what the kind of uh, the Oxford one and also what Pfizer have used. So these are kind of genetic vaccines. So if you look at the Pfizer one, what you use is you take the genetic information from the virus that makes the spike protein. So it's not the spike protein itself. And you basically put that inside a little bubble and you deliver that bubble to the body. That bubble then gets taken into cells. That genetic information comes into our cells and our cells use that genetic information to build the spike protein. And then our cells present that spike protein to our immune system. For the Oxford vaccine, rather than using the genetic information in a bubble, we take that genetic information and put it in another virus that we've made in the lab. Now, that virus itself is a friendly virus. It can't cause disease. We've actually modified it so it's very, very safe and doesn't cause disease. But what happens when you give a virus to the body is that virus is very effective, as other viruses are, of getting into our cells. So the virus delivers the vaccine directly to the cells and releases it. In that case, rather than using RNA, it mostly uses DNA. And that DNA goes directly into the nucleus of our cells, which is kind of the central part of the cell, and there produces mRNA, which then the body uses to help build the spike protein. Has it been shown that like a certain COVID vaccine is more effective than another one? So, so far, we've shown that all the vaccines are pretty effective. So when we kind of started at the kind of making vaccines, that's not just that's the grand way, so not just us in Oxford, but all the vaccine manufacturing teams. The WHO set a kind of guideline that they, a 50% protected vaccine would be great. Now, pretty much all the vaccines that are out there are above that. 
Some, such as the Pfizer vaccine, seem a little bit more effective. They're, they're kind of on 95, rather than the Oxford ones, but maybe a little bit lower, uh, around 80 to 85% uh, potentially. But again, vaccines have different levels of effectiveness in different populations and in different ages. And also over time, as the virus evolves and we see these kind of variants um, emerge where it's kind of slightly different versions of the virus, some vaccines become more or less effective than others. So it very much changes over time. But one of the things we can do is, as my vaccine manufacturers, we can change the vaccine ourselves and modify it so it becomes more effective as the virus changes. It would be really great if there was like a vaccine that could protect all of the... Fight against all the yeah. coronavirus variants. But yeah. yeah, It's ultimately what we try and achieve with every vaccine. I mean, it's very similar kind of situation with a lot of other diseases as well. So there's lots of different ways you can attempt to do it. But obviously we have to test those in the lab and see if that works first before we can take them forward and, and use them in people to test how good the vaccine is. But it's a great question and comment. It's exactly the right way to go. We would like to protect against all of them. Why are people getting second vaccines? The effectiveness of the vaccine can go down over time. And so it may be that we need to boost with the same vaccine again after a year or so, or perhaps a bit longer. We don't fully know that yet, but uh, we will probably be starting to give booster doses to some people a year or so after their original vaccine. But there's another reason which we just talked about, which is that the virus can change shape a bit. And so it may be that we need to give updated vaccines, which can let you attack a virus which has got a slightly different shape from the earlier virus. Has there been any difference in reaction to the vaccine between people who have like underlying health conditions, like versus people who like maybe don't? Yes, definitely is the answer to that. So we know that some people are less able to make a very strong immune response. So some people who have weaker immune systems, people who are having treatments, for example, for cancers and things, or people who are a bit older, perhaps, are probably less likely to make such strong immune responses. And so it may well be that some people who are in the more vulnerable kind of groups who have other illnesses may need to have an, an extra dose of vaccine. In the future, we might find that they might need to have a higher dose of vaccine as well. And I think these are things that we're going to find out over time. But we know with other vaccines, for example, people who have HIV who may have a slightly slightly weaker immune response, although we have very good treatment for HIV now, those people need a higher dose of hepatitis B vaccine, for example, for that virus. And so we might find in the future that different doses or, or additional doses of vaccine might be needed for some people who have slightly weaker immune systems. Um, how was it decided who got the vaccine first in the UK and is this the same in every country? There's kind of two ways of thinking about it. You either look to kind of give one to the people who are most at risk. So as we mentioned with COVID, lots of people who are older are more likely to be hospitalised or more likely to die. So you want to obviously protect those people first. But then equally, you've got people who might be in a kind of more exposed environment. So even though they're not as old and they're younger and healthier, doctors and nurses are likely to be exposed to other patients who have got infected with a disease. So it's important to protect them. Actually, with a lot of other diseases, which are maybe not particularly dangerous or common in the population, certain people might be at risk. So for example, in the lab, we have vaccinations against certain diseases that are found in people's blood because we're exposed to blood on a regular basis, even though we're not exposed to the people themselves. 
And the other kind of thing, way of looking about how to prioritize people is who are the people who are most spreading the disease? So in that case, if you look at COVID, actually the youngest generation are possibly the ones who might spread it the quickest, even though they're not the most infected or the most ill. So it's kind of weighing up all those possibilities and all those options. Um, in the UK, they decided to go with the people who are at high, high risk of kind of dying and hospitalization, um, which personally I think is the kind of best way to prioritize, but obviously also the healthcare works and things like that. There are actually some countries that have done it a different way. I think it was in Indonesia, they actually decided to vaccinate some of the youngest populations first. They went for the kind of 20s to 30s, those people who are the most working kind of, um, particularly kind of people who are working in a kind of urban environment, uh, because they're the ones who are transmitting the disease. So there's no right or wrong way about going about it. Um, And it's ultimately down to kind of policymakers and governments to make those decisions. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us. I'm Jessica. And I'm Annabelle. And you've been listening to the Stem in the Garbles podcast. Brilliant. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you.